Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. Nadir Token from 27.4 Investment Managers in studio today to guide us through all that's happening on global markets. And later in the show, we're also going to be joined by Investex Ian Cunningham to discuss their Global Strategic Managed Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, the world's largest online retailer, Amazon, posted a profit of nearly $2 billion, the largest in its history. This was driven by changes to U.S. tax law, which added to the company's bottom line, along with its ability to lock in millions of new customers to its prime fast shipping club over the holiday season. Meanwhile, Google parents Alphabet missed quarterly profit forecasts of $7 billion, coming in just shy of that at $6.8 billion. This as spending weighed on the technology company. Expenses jumped 27%, driving steady ad sales growth to promote its consumer gadgets. And all eyes on export numbers this week. Import and export data from the world's largest economies will put China back in the spotlight, and along with it, Donald Trump and the threat of protectionism. Here's more. U.S. President hardly mentioning China and restricting his comments on trade. This week, those issues can hardly be avoided as the world's number two economy reveals new import and export numbers and the size of its US trade surplus with them. Clearly China is the big one and of course that feeds directly into, uh, into President Trump and his views on, uh, on people that run large current account budget surpluses and here I'm thinking of Germany and in particular China. Which has reported an all-time surplus with the US last year of $275 billion a year that also saw Chinese exports rise at their quickest in four years in a welcome sign of returning demand. This is a magnificent period of synchronized growth. The more broad-based the recovery looks to be, the safer it may be uh, in the years ahead. That safety still vulnerable if protectionism rises. Trump already imposing tariffs on washing machines and solar panels last month. Cheap steel imports and intellectual property rights also seen as hot-button issues, though the rhetoric might be cooling. Trump has made some very valid points about global trade, about wanting to have sensible, fair and sustainable deals. And in practice, the reality of what Mr Trump has done is a lot less bad than the bark. A Chinese yuan up around 10% against the dollar in under a year and a half may play to Trump's agenda by dampening demand for Chinese exports, while a rising euro close to three-year highs versus the dollar on Friday is the danger for the Eurozone. It also reports trade numbers from its two major economies, France and Germany, this week. Before both, though, and before China come the first big trade numbers from the US itself on Tuesday. Nadir Token, Portfolio Manager at 27.4, joins me in studio now. And so, Nadir, it looked pretty scary on Friday. And I, I suppose what happened in the U.S. markets on Friday fed through to European markets today, yep. also our markets in South Africa, down sharply. Yep. Um, but it looks like it's tapered off as the U.S. opened today. So do you think we are in for a big fall, or do you think this was a, a knee-jerk reaction and perhaps a bit of profit-taking? Yeah, look, I mean, I think both of the above, you know, let's not forget that we started the year sprinting out the blocks, you know, at one point, uh, global equity markets across the board were up around 5% um, at one point in January. Um, you know, corporate earnings are coming through at a very good clip. We've seen a number of companies reporting, which have actually been quite impressive. Um, and companies are investing, you know, so we expected that we're going to continue to see another strong year from global equities, perhaps not another 20% plus year that like we got last year. I mean, that was an absolute gift, you know, but I think uh, we're probably not going to get there this year. But we certainly think, uh, you know, mid-double digit, uh, mid-teens um, is not out the question and our base case scenario of sort of 
over low to mid uh, mid double digits, uh, certainly on the card. So, you know, I think uh, obviously, you know, the 5% returns we saw in the start of January, that wasn't sustainable, you know. So I think a bit of profit taking on the back of that. But there's no doubt that there is concern about uh, interest rates going up quicker. The number seems to be three in a Fed hikes this year. Um, anytime the market seems to think that the Fed is going to go faster than that, um, you, we're going to see some bouts of volatility. At the end of the day, there has been some capital allocation decisions which have been made, which are very marginal, where these companies are barely earning their cost of capital, and that's with interest rates being very, very depressed. Now, obviously, um, if those long bond yields kick up quite aggressively, which is what we saw through the course of last week, uh, 10-year Treasury is getting to a four-year high, touching just below 290. Um, you know, a lot of those companies, uh, you know, it starts to become questionable whether they're earning their cost of capital, and particularly those companies that have leveraged themselves to invest. I think those are the ones that are in, um, in the most tenuous position. Uh, but I think overall, you know, the average company certainly not in that position. Um, you know, they haven't over-indebted themselves. They're not over-leveraged. And they're earning a very healthy return on assets and return on invested mm -hmm. capital. So I think they'll in the, in the broadly be okay. Um, but we're going to see bouts of this kind of volatility, certainly, uh, particularly ar around macroeconomic uh, expectations of, of what the Fed is going to do around inflation data, wage growth. Um, unemployment numbers, that, that, that kind of thing. Of course, we had Janet Yellen um, finishing off as Fed um, in January. Um, we have the new Fed chair. Do you think it's going to be steady as, as you go with the new Fed chair taking over from, from Janet? Well, I mean, so, so Jerome Powell has certainly communicated a message of consistency. Um, you know, he's reiterated data dependence, data dependence, data dependence. Which and is what Janet's song was as well. Exactly yeah. right. So, you know, yeah. and I think that's why the, exactly why the market reacted the way it did after the jobs numbers on Friday, you know. Um, and particularly that wage inflation number, which came in just a touch below 3%. Um, so the market's sort of saying, well, the data is being more supportive for interest rate hikes. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to be gun-shy if the data continues to be the supportive. Obviously, one data point doesn't make a trend, uh, but we'll continue to watch it. And I think, I don't think they're going to spring any surprises. You know, I think the Fed took a lot of flack after the taper tantrum of June 2013, uh, where we saw um, risk assets in the U.S. coming under severe pressure, emerging markets suffering severe outflows in their currencies, depreci depreciating very sharply. The Fed, uh, under the rule of, of Ben Bernanke at the time, obviously, um, you know, coming under a lot of pressure then about clumsy communication. Um, um, and I, look, I don't think that, that, that Jerome Powell is going to make the same mistake. I think he's not going to be as gun-shy as what, as what Janet Yellen was. So if the data is supportive, you know, I think the Fed is going to move. But the bottom line is that if the data is supportive, that's a positive environment for growth. That's a positive environment for equities. That's a positive environment for companies to pass on um, you know, inflationary pass-through to their consumers because uh, you know, the economy can withstand those higher prices. And ultimately, that's good for earnings. So it yeah. warrants higher multiples, quite frankly. Okay. Well, let's take a, a look at those couple, a couple of those uh, earnings reports that have come out, yeah. um, and um, some of them have disappointed, although yeah. some of them have been good. Yeah. And so we'll start with a good one: um, yeah. um, Amazon, uh, profits of nearly two billion dollars. It's the largest profit in its history, yeah. um, and, and it was helped by that new tax law, of course, yeah. um, that was introduced by Donald Trump. Yeah. So I mean, they got a, around an eight hundred million dollar tax, um, you know, benefit on their income statements uh, of, uh, in, in in those fourth quarter numbers uh, because of the lower tax rates. You know, show me one company in the world which can operate mm -hmm. on four and a half percent margin and the scale of investment that 
that Amazon has. I mean, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. You're talking about a company that had revenues of over $60 billion in the fourth quarter, um, you know, up 42% year on year in the fourth quarter relative to the same period last year. Um, yet we're talking about operating profit of $1.9 billion, you know, and they, they're riding home about margins of 4.5%, you know. Now, <laughs> every textbook will teach you that, you know, the, the, the perfect company to invest in is the company that has strong free cash flow generation, very good margins, uh, strong barriers to entry. That's the company you want to invest in. So, I mean, Amazon definitely ticks the strong barriers to entry. I think, ironically, it's the very low margins that actually give it that high barriers to entry. There are very few competitors globally that are willing to outlay that kind of capital for a 4.5% margin. Alibaba seems to uh, want to do a similar thing, you know, um, announcing plans to sort of do a 1 billion euro um, investment in the European market over the course of the last uh, three years. I think management of Alibaba are going to get a rude awakening. Amazon has done 15 times that amount mm. since 2010. Um, you know, so there are the incumbents in a lot of these markets. We know the world is moving to online. That's why we're getting the rapid on uh, top line acceleration. Yes, Whole Foods contributed $4.5 billion um, in revenue to that top line number of Amazon. So, you know, strategically that purchase seems to be working out and continuously driving the, the, the top line number. And I think they, the, the one thing Amazon has gotten right is that, um, you know, they're getting that this blend of the physical world and the online world right. They're realizing that, you know, food distribution is something that's exceptionally complicated, that the, the food, the, the, the delivery chain is, is exceptionally con- yeah. uh, complicated. You've got to have this refrigerated distribution chains. That's something that's exce- exceedingly costly, you know, and they're saying instead of sinking capital into that, let's buy Whole Foods. Um, you know, they've already got the infrastructure there and let's focus our capex on areas of, of where, where we specialize in R&D spend, um, you know, where we know we've got good barriers to entry and we're not competing with um, a whole lot of other guys because they're not willing, people willing to outlay that kind of capital. So, okay. I mean, at the end of the day, just a well-run company, good set of results. But you um, still be buying it? Sure, it's run up a lot. Eh? Look, I mean, I think, uh, you, you, you know, you've got to own Amazon in the global space. I mean, the clip at which they're growing, they recently re- they, they launched this new checkout list store, you know. So, I mean, in terms of R&D spend and being ahead of the curb, you know, you, you have to credit them, uh, you know, for being able to do that. I suppose, you know, if you look at other markets, market leaders who have benefited from that, something like Apple, you know, I mean, they've always had that first mover advantage and look at them today. They're the leaders in the smartphone markets and I suppose the one difference between Apple and Amazon that Apple is competing in a declining industry because the number of uh, you know mobile phones in operation um, is or the number of new mobile phones and marginal number of units being added um, is decreasing we see that down just over six percent year on year relative to one year ago Apple just has the greatest market share the difference with Amazon is that they're actually appealing to a growing market you know more and more people are consuming goods online um, you know you're talking about whether it's in the luxury space it's uh, quite interesting to look at uh, you Netta Porter's numbers mm-hmm. recently because Richmond took them over, months, right? Yeah. I mean, the, basically, all luxury growth that has happened over the course of the last five years has been luxury consumption online. We're talking about a growth in the 30%, whereas overall luxury has grown at under 10%. So yeah. the bottom line is that Amazon has those tailwinds. Um, they're investing in that R&D, and they've got high barriers to entry because there's very few people who have the scale um, and, and the logistic base that Amazon has to come and compete at 4.5% margins. Mm. Well, I mean, I just before 
before we get to break. So uh, yes, I would still be buying. <laughs> you would still be buying. Uh, quick word on Apple's um, yeah. results last week because it looks like the iPhone sales um, came in lower than expected, yeah. particularly for the iPhone 10. That is quite a, a pricey um, instrument. I think yeah. it's $1,000, or well, $999. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, it, it, it's, it's staggering to imagine a company that generated $82 billion of revenue in a quarter that disappointed analysts' <laughs> expectations. I mean, you know, they sold 77 million iPhones. Um, you know, the average price of the, I the, of, of the average unit they sold went up to around $796. Um, so higher average price, that tells you that the iPhone X actually debuted reasonably well because um, not a lot of, so the disappointment probably came on the iPhone 8 model, um, you know, because it's obviously the one that's slightly cheaper and the market was expecting slightly over 80 million units sold. They came in at 77 million units sold and the stock came under a bit of pressure um, on, on, on the back of that. Look, I mean, with Apple, the bottom line is that they're market leaders there, 19% of the smartphone markets probably at some point going to reach saturation. We know that the amount of marginal smartphones being purchased each year and each quarter is declining. So the bottom line is that it is, at some point, it's going to become a race to the bottom in that industry. You know, they're going to compete with Samsung, they're going to compete with Huawei and all the other uh, manufacturers. I think what's going to be the big, the next big leg up for Apple is going to be services um, and is going to be um, other accessory services. Is a is a wonderful innovation for Apple. Basically, every single addition dollar of revenue is pretty much going straight into their pocket yeah. because the R&D spend is done, right? Unless they're going to continuously bring new products, that's obviously going to add some pressure to the cost base and decline, uh, decrease the margins. But we're still talking about highly attractive margins and I suppose that's, gonna, that's what the market's going to be watching closely. For years and years, we've been saying Apple is too concentrated in the iPhone. They need to diversify their revenue base. You know, you're talking about services up 15, 20, 30 percent quarter on quarter. Can they continue those numbers quarter in and quarter out, year in and year out, because that's what's going to ultimately diversify the earnings base and, and be the next leg up for the stock. Okay, uh, we have to leave it there just for a moment. We're going to have a short break. When we come back, we look at Investec Strategic Managed Fund. That's with co-portfolio manager Ian Cunningham. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio is Nadir Token from 27.4. Joining me on the line to put uh, forward the investment case for the Investec Global Strategic Managed Fund is Investec's Ian Cunningham. Ian, thank you very much for, for joining us on the, the line this evening. So if somebody buys into the, the Investec Global Strategic Managed Fund, what are they getting? So, I mean, so the Investec um, Global Strategic Managed Fund is a um, it's a it's a global, it's a diversified, um, it's a flexible uh, multi-asset strategy. Um, so essentially, we're seeking to deliver equity-like returns um, for less than equity volatility, about two thirds of the volatility of, of equity markets. So, I mean, and have have the returns been matching those equity-like returns you, you mentioned? So over the over the long term, in terms of what we're, we're aiming to achieve so across a cycle or a number of cycles, the, the fund um, certainly has uh, achieved that objective. Mm. So when you talk multi assets, um, equities, bonds, cash, anything else in there? So typically, the fund is focused on, I mean, three areas per primarily. So we're looking at equities, fixed income, which is across the, the spectrum of equities and fixed income, um, and also currency markets, um, and occasionally um, commodities such as such as gold. So a, a truly multi-asset portfolio. And would that also include property in, in some of the space? 
Yes, yeah, so we would we would typically include property within within our equity sleeve. So obviously, property has slightly different characteristics to traditional equity, but it's it's generally listed um, property that we're we're buying. So we classify that within our, our equity bucket. Okay. So I mean, you say in the commentary or on your fact sheets that you invest in high quality defensive and uncorrelated assets. Um, does it, I mean does it, I suppose this creates some balance for investors in the fund? Yes, so the, the, the approach that we look at, and it's really, a, it's really a lens that we look through in terms of a risk lens. So it's, um, it's looking at uh, growth defensive or uncorrelated assets, and that's really to look at um, an asset's effective exposure as opposed to, to just the label that's placed upon it. So a growth asset is anything that is, is equity sensitive, so co- positively correlated with the economic cycle. A defensive asset is anything that will rise um, should growth assets or equity markets decline. And an uncorrelated asset is something that has a, a return stream that's independent of either growth or um, defensive assets. So were you feeling a little bit more comfortable than the rest of the markets on Friday when we saw that big fall in the Dow Jones? Yes, I think the, I mean, obviously markets have had a phenomenal run. Um, we're in the, we believe we're in the last stages of a, of a bull market. Um, Sentiment measures are pretty extended. Valuations are also elevated, um, and investors have become far more fully positioned in, in equities. So I think across the, the past six months or so, we have ultimately been, been dialing back some exposure and, and building in defensive positions into to certain bond markets around the world and, and also into to certain currency markets like the Japanese yen, which tends to be um, pretty defensive. So we've been diversifying the portfolio. We've, we've been increasing liquidity in general, seeking to, 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 to address some of those issues should we get some further bumps in the road for equity markets. Mm. Nadir, do you think it's a good idea to be a bit more defensive in a market like this in case there are further bumps ahead? Yeah, look, no doubt, especially in a, in a multi-strategy fund. You know, you probably don't want to be full tilt given that equities have done 20% in the last year. Um, I suppose with a fund like this, and Ian, if, if, if I could pose a question, um, how, how difficult does it become to fil- find alternatives to equities in this market? Because, you know, what's going to result in a bumpy road for equities moving ahead is exactly what we saw towards the latter part of last week, was expectations for inflation going up, expectations for interest rates going up, and bonds derating on the back of that quite sharply with yield spiking so um, you know outside of outside of the equity market how where else would you position um, you know defensively given that you know short-term interest rates are still quite low so you know cash is, is not giving you much of a yield and bonds still present a risk just like equities in a, in a spiking yield environment Sure. So I think ultimately that is certainly a challenge and a lot of defensive assets around the world have been very expensive. So when we continue to look at um, European bonds in particular, Japanese government bonds, they are thoroughly exceptionally expensive. Um, so holding a significant amount of exposure there doesn't make particular sense. There's two areas in uh, specifically that we like. Obviously markets will be volatile and then there'll be a, a general amount of noise that's typically coming through. But on a medium term horizon, we like longer dated treasuries. So we like 30 year um, US treasuries. Uh, we believe that a full hiking cycle is, is pretty much priced into that, that bond market. And we also like the Japanese yen specifically, so the yen versus the U.S. dollar. We believe that the dollar will continue to, to weaken, and we're, we're uh, explicitly focused on the, the Japanese yen on the basis that investors are, are exceptionally short the Japanese yen. It's a, it's a very cheap currency, and fundamentals within Japan are actually beginning to, to improve quite significantly. And I think one thing that's worth noting in markets at the moment is the extent of investor positioning. So obviously, 
we've seen a broad based selling off of, of many assets, so bonds and equities across the last week or so. But when we look at positioning data, investors are exceptionally long equities relative to the last five years um, and also exceptionally short government bonds. So there's a, a point in the future where things will, will ultimately um, uh, revert from that positioning. Mm. I mean, Ian, you, you mentioned the dollar and you, you, you expect the dollar in the longer term to remain um, weak. But 38% of your currency exposure uh, amongst your fund is to North America, um, so incl including Canada there, uh, and your bond holdings are mostly in the United States and, and Canada. So how do, you get to, how do you reduce that currency risk while um, keeping your exposure to those markets? So the, the typically the portfolio will have anywhere between zero and 100% in, in US dollars. So I think as of, as of the end of December, the, the fund had in the, in the mid-30s in terms of, of dollars. Um, we've favored the euro for quite some time, but we've begun to rotate that um, risk from European currencies into the, into the Japanese yen. So the, the yen has grown um, to quite a, a decent position um, across the past um, three or four months. Um, and really, when we're taking positions in, in U.S. Treasuries, for example, um, we are we're viewing those on a local currency basis. So we would naturally be, be hedging those positions whilst maintaining um, a certain degree of currency exposure if we believe that was appropriate within the fund. So the, based on the fund's history, um, the allocation to the dollar is quite low right now. In the, in the middle, middle to end of 2016, the dollar was as high as 75% uh, within the portfolio. I mean, you, you talked about the equity markets. Are, are you seeing any uh, attractive opportunities in the equity market globally at the moment, Ian? Yes, I mean, in terms of, of, of opportunities on a forward-looking basis, obviously uh, markets in the U.S. Are, are somewhat extended at the moment, and any material setback there would, would probably cause um, a correction elsewhere, as we, we are seeing, I think, over the, over the medium term. We think on the basis that we expect a slightly weaker dollar through time, that should support emerging markets. And we're seeing Asia in particular, there's been a lot of change within um, China. So reforms are, are coming through. Um, obviously, a lot of the, the, the cutbacks in terms of capacity and production within the, the state-owned enterprises there are improving um, commodity prices. So we like um, certain large-cap mining stocks as well. Um, because we believe they've cleaned up their balance sheet, they've, they've sorted out their act, and they're now into to, to cash, um, cash flow production and, and essentially boosting returns for, for investors. Mm. Uh, your, your thoughts on the, the approach here, Nadia? Yeah, look, um, Ian, maybe just one question from my side. You know, you, you, you mentioned you, your, your exposure in the bond market. You got quite a, quite a lot of U.S. long bond exposure. Um, you, you, it's uh, indicating you're clearly not that afraid of the duration. I mean, um, you know, given the extent to which uh, listed property internationally has lagged the global equity markets and the kind of yield, or the yield discounts or premium or higher yield, should I say, that, that you're seeing in these listed property counters relative to the equivalent government bonds um, and the discount to NAV, is that not an, an, an attractive defensive uh, position you're finding given how expensive bonds and equities or, or relatively expensive equities are and how expensive bonds are internationally at the moment? Yes, I think it depends where you where you look. And when we look at REITs specifically, REITs fall somewhere between um, bonds and equities in terms of the characteristics and the way they, they evolve. So if we if we were to see a material shock in equity markets that was was growth or recession uh, risk driven, then we'd likely see REITs um, sell off. Whereas we think on in that type of scenario, bonds will actually react positively. And when we actually value 30-year treasuries, we actually think that 30-year treasuries with a yield of north of 3% are, are actually cheap. Uh, 
Mm. Um, I mean, maybe just in closing, I mean, your benchmark and how you've performed relative to that benchmark over the over the last period, Ian. Sorry, could you repeat that question? Uh, what, what, what do you benchmark yourself against and how have you performed relative to that benchmark over the last period? Yes, yeah, so we would. We typically compare the, the portfolio explicitly against a 60-40, a so 60 global equities, um, 60 uh, global government bond benchmark. And I think across the past uh, year and a half to two years, the, the fund has performed pretty well against that. So generally in the middle of 2016, when positioning was less crowded, people were, were less enthusiastic. We were, we were buying into to U.S. banks. We were adding emerging market exposure, Japanese equity exposure, and didn't really have much in the way of, uh, or we had a much lower level of duration within the portfolio at that point. Um, and then the funds benefited from a, a long position in the euro in general underweight um, to the U.S. dollar across the, the past year or so. Um, and as a function, the, the fund has performed relatively well compared to that benchmark over that period. Okay, Ian, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much for chatting to us this evening. Thank you very much. That's the All show right. for this week. Thanks again to Nadir Token, Portfolio Manager at 27.4. Also Ian Cunningham, he's the Co-Portfolio Manager of Investex Global Strategic Managed Fund. Uh, thank you for watching. Join us again at the same time next week. Goodbye.